the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. The word one in the Greek is the word hen, spelled just like a chicken, but it's the Greek word hen. And it translates one in essence and nature, or one and the same. So he literally is saying, I and the Father are one in essence and nature. I and the Father are one and the same. He is asserting his divinity as God. Some people may think that Jesus isn't God. They say he was a good person, a wise prophet who walked the earth. Some may even say that Jesus never claimed to be God. But today, Pastor Gary will share that this simply isn't true, and he'll show you exactly how the Bible proves this. Jesus himself said that he is God. He and the Father are one. They are the same. And there's a third member of what's known as the triune God, the Holy Spirit. This manifestation of God is your helper and guide in all things. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 10 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So this fly lays eggs in the mucous membranes of a sheep's nose, which become larvae, and then a few days it takes, that's all it takes, to form small, slender, worm-like larvae. They work their way up the nasal passages into the sheep's head. They burrow into the flesh, and there set up an intense irritation accompanied by severe inflammation. For relief from this agonizing annoyance, sheep will deliberately beat their heads against trees, rocks, posts, or brush... They will rub their heads in the soil and thrash around. And in extreme cases of intense infestation, a sheep may even kill itself in a frenzied endeavor to gain respite from the aggravation. Often advanced stages of infection from those flies will lead to blindness. So, you know, if it isn't bad enough that, you know, you could drown if you stepped into water, you know, now you have to worry about nasal flies. Uh, but interestingly... Keller writes about, this is, this is as part of you read the 23rd Psalm, thou anointest my head with oil. That's all addressing how God relieves us from the source of irritation and aggravation that often comes by way of life, because that's a picture of what a shepherd will do to help a sheep to prevent these flies from laying eggs and producing larvae. They anoint their heads with oil, and the oil serves to be like a salve that keeps the flies away 
and, and the olive oil keeps the flies away and keeps them out of burrowing up their nose. So it's a kind thing that the shepherd does to anoint the sheep's head with oil. And it's that beautiful picture in Psalm 23 of thou anointest my head with oil because God is concerned about those things that come into our lives that irritate and aggravate because he wants us to have his peace. He wants us to have his rest. He doesn't want us to have to always be frustrated with all of the things of this world. So God even anoints our head with oil like a good shepherd does his sheep. And so as you recognize all of these things, one more thing on the list, and that is dirty. They are very dirty creatures. Again, as I mentioned last week, they secrete an oil constantly that we have harvested today and use in some products called lanolin. But as a result, the oil makes them very sticky. Everything sticks to to sheep. Their own urine, feces, grass, twigs, dirt, everything sticks to them. Somebody once said that sheep are like walking Velcro because everything they touch sticks to them. So they're dirty creatures. Now, I want you to recognize all this because in in this discussion here that Jesus has about sheep and shepherd, we need to see ourselves. We need to see ourselves. Now, he's going to speak here about my sheep, and that is speaking of the Jews, But then he also in the text here talks about in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And that speaks to the Gentiles. Because Jesus came to die for all, Jew and Gentile alike, and that as many as respond to him can have relationship with him. If they acknowledge that he is the Christ. So then in the course of this story here, this dialogue, he expresses what the true shepherd is all about. And everything about the true shepherd is really pointing to himself in this whole context. One of the things that he says there in verse uh, 3 and 4 is that the true shepherd leads the sheep and he goes ahead of them. In other words, he guides faithfully. These are all things about Jesus that he really is expressing to us about himself through the, the picture of a shepherd. He guides us faithfully. He is the one who leads us. And he goes before us. You know, sheep cannot be herded like cattle. Sheep can only be led. Sheep can only follow. That's how they move. They cannot be herded like cattle. And so Jesus is that good shepherd who guides us faithfully, and then we follow him when we have relationship with him. He also mentions here that they know his voice. And that mention about the voice here is... um, like five times through, through this 10th chapter about knowing his voice, knowing his voice, knowing his voice. What it expresses is that he knows, he knows us personally. When you, if you call somebody on the, on the phone who's a really good friend or family member, you don't have to identify yourselves. I mean, beside the fact that they have caller ID on everything. Now, pretending that they don't have caller ID, you don't have to announce yourself or, or introduce yourself on the phone because why? Somebody knows your voice. If they have a relationship with you, if they know you well and know you personally, you don't have to, hey, mom, this is your son. You know, they know your voice when you just say, hey, how are you? They can hear. And that's the same way that Jesus is with us. We know his voice because he knows us personally and we have a relationship with him. Then he also says there in verse 7, one of the I am statements, I am the gate. When shepherds would corral their sheep at night, when they would be out in the pastures in the wilderness, they would corral their sheep at night to keep them from wandering off. So they would build little makeshift fences to, to pen them in. But then there wouldn't be a, an actual gate with you know hinges and a latch. 
the shepherd would be the gate. And at the opening to this penned area that they would make with sticks and branches and brush, whatever they could, the shepherd himself would lie down across the entryway so that the sheep could not leave without, you know, and get lost, and so that no predator could come in and devour the sheep. So it was this picture of, of genuine care that the shepherd had for the sheep that I'm going to just put my body here and stay watch for you because I care for you. And then he also mentions there, number four, I am the good shepherd in verse 11. And that expresses how he loves sacrificially because he he says there in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which is exactly what Jesus would do for us by dying on a cross versus the hired hand, someone who's not a legitimate shepherd, someone who does not have the interest of the sheep, the the false shepherds, the ones who are not true. When they see a wolf coming, they're going to abandon the sheep. You know, they don't really care. They run away, verse 13, because uh, being a hired hand, they, they don't care for the sheep. Now, I have to tell you that when you look through this, and obviously Jesus is the chief shepherd, and he is the great and the good shepherd, that even the role of, of pastors, we, we need to model the idea of what Jesus is like here. Okay, And you, you can spot a pastor is not truly a pastor, doesn't truly have a pastor's heart by the way he, he doesn't abide by the example of Jesus. And unfortunately, there are some hired hands. There, there are some, some pastors in some churches that they don't really have an interest to love and care and feed the sheep. They, they're just in it maybe for themselves or personal gain or ego or whatever it is, or ulterior motives. And there are, there are a lot, uh, unfortunately, of, of some people who aren't in the ministry for the right reasons. And Jesus is expressing who he is here, and if if anybody in ministry desires to serve the Lord, then they should exemplify the Lord in these areas as well in relation to his sheep by guiding faithfully and knowing personally and caring genuinely and loving sacrificially. That's a part of just being real and genuine and faithful and loving. And so he sets the example here. But again, he mentions in verse 16 that I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. Jesus did not die only for the Jew, but he also died for the Gentile that all would be saved who come to know him. And then again in verse 17, he kind of repeats this whole idea of I'm laying down my life for the sins of the world. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I laid down my life only to take it up again because Jesus was not defeated by the grave. He rose again three days later, triumphed over sin and death. So he says, verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He says, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, this command I received from my Father. When Jesus was crucified, it was not something done to him. It was something that he allowed to be done to him. Because he had the authority over his life, and it was his to lay down, and it was his to take up. No man takes my life from me, Jesus says. When he dies on the cross, he willingly submitted to the will of the Father and allowed the Romans, the Jews all of us, in effect, to nail him to that cross. But it wasn't because he was forced to die. It was because he was willing to die for us. Verse 19 says, At these words the Jews were again divided. Many of them said he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? referring to the story in the last chapter, chapter 9. So, you know, they're divided. So like, you know, some like what he's saying and others don't. And they, they, those who don't, 
dismiss him as being demon-possessed and raving mad. And uh, the others are like, no, doesn't make sense that a raving lunatic and a demon-possessed guy could do what this guy does. Verse 22, then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. Underline feast of dedication. The word dedication in Hebrew is Hanukkah. So this is also called the Feast of Lights, Feast of Dedication. This is Hanukkah. It is wintertime, it says in the next sentence. It was winter. Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. Now the Feast of Lights, or Hanukkah, surrounds a story that happened about 165 years before Christ. And I'll just give you the real brief synopsis of what Hanukkah means. But around 200s B.C., Uh, There was a guy by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Uh, He was a Greek king who was part of the what they call the Seleucid dynasty. Now the Seleucid dynasty came about because Alexander the Great, the great Greek general, when he died he had no heirs. So he divided his kingdom between four of his generals. One of his generals' names was Seleucus. And he got a part of the kingdom of Alexander the Great which covers... Uh, today, basically Syria, that, that region of Syria. And then as king over that region, his descendants became king in his place. So Antiochus IV Epiphanes was a descendant of Seleucid, and he was king of this region of Syria. Epiphanes was not his given name. It was the title that he went by, which means, you know, the presence of the Lord. You know, so this guy had, you know, an ego bigger than his kingdom. So there he is, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, uh, this guy who is, you know, God made manifest. That's the way he saw himself as God made manifest. He marches into Jerusalem in the year 167 BC, and he takes over the temple with his forces, the Jewish temple. And one of the things he does is to desecrate the Jewish temple by sacrificing a pig, which is not kosher. Pigs are not kosher. And so he desecrated the temple by taking a pig in there, sacrificing a pig on the altar. Well, the Jews didn't, didn't stand for this for very long. In 164 B.C., there was a revolt of the Jews against Antiochus IV Epiphanes, led by a man, a Jewish man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. It becomes known as the Great Maccabean Revolt. And the Jews overtake the army that was there in Jerusalem and took back their temple. And when they did, they cleaned it all up and they relit the menorah. But they could only find one day's worth of oil, olive oil, that was placed within each of the candelabras of the menorah, the golden lampstand. And the one day's oil miraculously lasted for eight days days because they had to go through the priest had to go through a very meticulous process of of creating the best virgin olive oil that was sacred and sanctified in order to put it in the menorah so it took them that long to make it well in the course of that long that that took for them to make that this oil miraculously burned there in the menorah in the temple of the lord and so that eight day length of time that the oil remained lit is called the Feast of Lights. They celebrate it for eight days. It is around our same time as Christmas. It is called Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication. So Jesus is celebrating this event here. And it was winter. And verse 23, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. 
And the Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you are the Messiah, they want to know, just tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You see, so they don't accept him and know him and receive him because they don't believe in him. So if they don't believe in him, of course they're not going to understand that he's been telling them that he is God. He says, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's a great promise for us, isn't it? And he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Then verse 30, this is a very critical verse. Underline this in your Bibles or highlighted in your electronic Bibles. He says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now John, I think better than the other Gospels, makes the clearest statements of Jesus related to his assertion of his divinity. And again, sometimes people will say, you know, where is it that Jesus ever clearly says that he is God? I was watching a, a debate on YouTube that somebody had sent me. Uh, there was a, it was a college forum where people were, there was a Q&A and there was a, a Muslim cleric and, and uh, he was being asked by a Christian, you know, why he didn't believe that Jesus is God uh, because Muslims only believe that Jesus was a great prophet inferior to Muhammad. And he came up to the microphone and he said, nowhere does Jesus ever make a claim that he is God. And that simply is not true. Because this is one of them right here in John 10 verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, for us to, to grasp the depth of the language, I'm going to parse out the Greek here for you because it's important. The word one in the Greek is the word hen, spelled just like a chicken, but it's the Greek word hen, and it translates one in essence and nature, or one and the same. So he literally is saying, I and the Father are one in essence and nature. I and the Father are one and the same. He is asserting his divinity as God. Now years ago, I had a random phone call here to the office, and Marilyn says, there's a lady that wants to talk to you. She says she's Jehovah's Witness, and she has some questions. I'm like, great. So I took the call. I think she really wanted to debate me, which, you know, rather than asking questions in the end. But she starts out by saying, you know, why do you believe that Jesus is God? Because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that he's God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that he is the son of God, but is different from God and is actually the archangel Michael. And so, you know, I, I begin to express to her, well, you know, Jesus said in different places, and this is one of the places I quoted right here in John 10, 30, is that Jesus said, I and the Father are one. She says, that, that doesn't mean that he's one and the same as God. I said, why do you say that? She says, well, it, it only means that he's like God, that he's similar. She says, kind of like, you know, if you were to say that you're one with your wife, it means that, you know, you've grown close and you have similarities, uh, but it doesn't mean that you're the same as your wife and your wife is not the same as you. So they're two different beings. I said, well, have you read further in your Bible? Because if, if, if Jesus uh, is only saying that he's kind of like God, then he's about 
to nearly get killed for simply saying that he's kind of like. Because if you read the rest of the passage, look at the rest of the passage here. Verse 31, again the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, what? Claim to be God. It was no mystery to the ears of the Jews what he was saying. They understood clearly he was asserting his divinity and his deity. He's saying, I am God. If you see him, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. We are one in essence and nature. I and the Father are one and the same. I said to this lady over the phone, with all due respect, the Jews seem to understand more than what you've complicated it to mean. The fact of the matter is that the plain, simple interpretation is that Jesus was claiming to be God. That's the reason why the Jews who didn't believe that he was God wanted to kill him. Because they heard it as blasphemy. And it would be blasphemy if it weren't true. But it is true. He's claiming to be God. And this is one of these clear places in the gospel where he does so. What he said was no mystery to the Jews. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus answered in verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy, because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless... Uh, unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, this is a, you know, a bit peculiar thing here where he's quoting and, and, and saying there you know, at the beginning of what I just read, he said, I have said you are gods. Isn't that in the Scripture? And actually, it is in Scripture, but let me, let me clarify this because this is one of these verses that have been really distorted. He's quoting out of Psalm 82 verses uh, 6 and 7. This is what it says. It says, I said, you are gods. It's in quotation marks. Gods. Small g. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Now, it's a rebuke in Psalm 82. So, but here's, here's sometimes what I have heard. I have heard you know, some people who say, you go around saying, you know, we're, we're little gods and they kind of assert their own little deity. It's just like, that's the most bizarre doctrine I've ever heard. There's only one true and living God, and we're, we're not God. But what does it mean then, where Jesus quotes the scripture, and what does Isaiah 2, 6, and 7 mean? The term gods, and it's in quotation marks, small g, was a term for earthly judges or rulers. And the reason we know this is because of what Psalm 82 said. I said you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men, you will fall like every other ruler. So it's in the same way that kind of in an old English, you might refer to a dignitary as Lord so-and-so. Okay? It doesn't mean you're ascribing deity to them. It's a title. And that's the title that was used for earthly judges. Now having said that, what Jesus is saying here is, if human judges can be referred to as God's small g, then Jesus, he's saying about himself, should be even more so acknowledged as the divine Son of God and as the ultimate judge. That's what he means by that passage. And verse 39, after he says all that, again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. 
He's on a divine timetable. He's not going to die before his appointed time. And then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing. That's John the Baptist in the early days. Here he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary's been going through the book of John. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd love to meet you. Please join us for worship and Bible study. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of John. Please know that we're praying for you too. Although we're out of time for today, keep reading on your own in the book of John until Pastor Gary continues teaching through this extraordinary account of Jesus' life on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know